0: Hi, Bookworms. We're super honored and excited to share that MNK Talk YA is going to be featured on Two Pods a Day for their January-February campaign.
1: Two Pods a Day aims to introduce podcast listeners to two independent podcasts every day for the months of January and February.
0: Discover more shows like MNK Talk YA by following Two Pods a Day on Twitter and
1: Facebook. Two Pods a Day. Listen more. Listen indie. Talk YA now presents Days of Blood and Starlight, Part 1, from the Daughter of Smoke and Bone trilogy by Lonnie Taylor.
0: Welcome back to m and Talk YA.
1: I'm Marissa Snyder.
0: And I'm Katie Bradford.
1: And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast.
0: And this week we read the first half of Days of Blood and Starlight.
1: By Lonnie Taylor.
0: Yep. And we read up to chapter 48.
1: Exactly. And that was called... Fascinating Guest. Fascinating Guest. All right. So, what did you think of this first half of the second book?
0: Oh my goodness. So much is happening <laughs> and I just want to keep reading and Susanna is still my favorite. Really? Yeah, I still love her. I don't know why. I just think she's, like, the perfect amount of, like, lightheartedness and humor, and I just relate to her so well, because she's just like, I'm gonna go, like, find my best friend in the desert... (laughs) And meet all these monsters and, like, like, hasn't even thought about how she's going to, like, die in the desert on her way there. Or how these monsters are probably going to want to kill her. And I just think she's hilarious.
1: And she's, like, turning it all into, like, a task that Mick has to do to win her hand in marriage. (laughs) Like a fairy tale.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so there's going to be three of them. (laughs) I also, I think they just balance each other really well. So, who's your favorite?
1: Well, I know who my favorite character is for the entire series since we've read this one. And... We've Mm -hmm. seen little glimpses of him, but Ziri is my favorite. Okay. Since
0: I've also read the whole thing,
1: I understand what you're saying. But I don't know him well enough yet. I know, I know. We just got little glimpses. But even so far, what I've seen, I was, like, reading his chapters and thinking, like, oh, my God, I remember how much I love you.
0: I also forgot how much we get to know um, Akiva's siblings. I like both of them. I think, like, they're three distinct personalities, but I like how they all kind of balance each other out, the three of them, when they're together.
1: Agreed. I really like uh, Laraz. If I had to pick a second favorite, it would be her. Because um, mm-hmm. I just love how ferocious she is. But there's also, like, her character's also a little bit sad because she takes pride in the fact that she doesn't feel love and she doesn't feel fear. Like, she basically has no emotions at all. She's just, like, a wind-up soldier. Yeah. Like Like, that's what Akiva calls her. And she just, like, won't let herself love or be vulnerable. And, and I just find that kind of fascinating. I
0: agree. But I also, I still love that she is, she's more soldier than ferocious. Like, the, the idea of killing these people who aren't fighting them disgusts her. And...
1: Oh, right. Because she makes that soldier, like, not mark his tallies. He was, like, marking his tallies. And she was like, don't you dare mark those as kills. It's nothing to be yeah. proud of.
0: And I love that about her, that she's, like, ferocious, but she still kind of has this sort of moral compass. It's not just, like, she she doesn't just, like, enjoy killing, no, but no, she no. does take being a soldier and being a good soldier really seriously.
1: Yeah, and you do see, like, that one moment when, like, Akiva and Hazel are almost really taken aback that she even brings it up when she's talking about the commander Jael, who's their, um, he's their mm-hmm. uncle, and he's the commander of the Dominion, which is, like, the elite legion of angels. Mm -hmm. aka not bastards yeah and they're part of the misbegotten who are you know the emperor's bastard soldiers who are like a much lower rank but she even has that moment where she was like addressing the fact that he is known to like take women against their will and and she like gave voice to that fear where she Mm -hmm. was like I'm glad I will never have to suffer that fate because we're you know blood relatives and even like that one admission of something uh, even akin to fear like, shocks her brothers that she even mentions it.
0: Yeah. Although, when we actually meet jail I am not surprised that that's a thing that she's... At, like. Oh, I know. He asked for a woman to be sent to his tent, and the commander is shocked and is like, we don't have any women, you know? It's just a bunch of soldiers. And he's like,
1: well, whatever works. He's like, one of them will have to do. Yeah. That's terrible. He just is so entitled to getting whatever he wants all the time, it seems. Yeah. And, and it's just like, I like that there's these two levels of angel soldiers, you know, like the dominion who are really elite, and then the misbegotten who, they say, like, one misbegotten soldier could take on 10 dominion soldiers, like, we're so Mm -hmm. much better trained, but still they are seen as so far beneath them.
0: He's not, like, Akiva's not even supposed to be called Sir. Right. You know, like, he's, like, done all this stuff for the emperor, but yeah. But that's why I think I also love hazel i think i agree he's not as interesting as this like i don't need to know more about him like i kind of want to know more about Laraz. but i think just the way that he's managed to kind of keep this lightheartedness and the way he sort of balances i feel like akiva is just like this brooding like moody guy (laughs) and Laraz is like you know this ferocious emotionless woman and i feel like hazel really keeps the group intact and i love that he's been through all these same kind of horrific events, and he's definitely affected by it. Like, we see him pick that flower and claim that it was just a bird when they see these, the group of... Um, oh,
1: the caprine. The, yeah. The, like, helpless yep. farmers. The sheep
0: people, and yeah. But he's managed to not, like, get so sucked into the war where he's kind of lost himself in that. Whereas I feel like mm-hmm. Akiva and Laraz have both done that in different ways, but it's just, it's kind of a refreshing of that so I like the three of them together
1: I do too and it's nice to see them taking each other's sides and being loyal to each other because we have that moment on the bridge when Laraz declares um oh my gosh what does she call it? Nephilim? Oh yeah the the chaos or yeah the chaos and she and Hazel like are fighting him really earnestly and there's a moment where Akiva is afraid she's going to kill him Mm -hmm. just because of what he did with you know loving a chimera but then, like, they break it off, and it seems like they're, they're cool now. <laughs> like, like that one battle ended, and they were just like, all right, we're just going to leave it.
0: Well, no, but their thing was, like, no more secrets. And I think, yeah. I keep, and we, we've learned this from all the young adult fiction we read, that secrets <laughs> cause problems. But I, I'm kind of curious to see, because at the very end of this part, Akiva realizes that Kairu is still alive, and I think... Assuming her role as the Resurrectionist, right? Yeah. So I'm curious if he will continue to keep that secret, or if he does tell his siblings.
1: He how- better tell them. But I feel like they are coming around to his side because even that moment when he and Hazel like hear the, that that Caprine girl scream and they go down to investigate, and there's a moment where he was like, "Is my brother gonna kill them?" Mm-hmm. And he just looks at him and he's like, "Oh no, it must have been a bird." And then in that moment, you kind of see like, "Okay, we both still have our humanity." Like. We are both on the same side.
0: Well, I honestly, I think I think that's true in so many, like, wars and stuff. And that's really the issue. Like, even on Kairos' side, she's like, I want vengeance. I'm so upset that these, that, you know, my family was killed. She's she's pissed off, right? Rightfully yeah. so. But at the same time, she's like, I don't feel good about, like, sneaking in and killing people in their sleep. Or, right. I mean, she doesn't even know, but, it, like, all but um, Ziri's group went and killed women and children of the angels side so it's just like on both sides i think there's a group of people who feel very strongly about the war and who their enemy is but their enemy is not the people their enemy is the opposing army and now that we've gone to kind of full out war no rules in part because we had to um well, I guess we could have imagined a different world and found peace, but that wasn't going to happen. So Yeah, but it's
1: just is like a circle of slaughter, right? It's just like a vicious yeah. cycle that never ends. And so now we have a few people who are standing out and saying, like, instead of killing, I'm just going to walk away. Or, you know, even Akiva, who's like warning, actively warning the chimera that the soldiers are coming, that the angels are coming. Like, we have a few characters here who are now stepping up and... Like, trying to stop the cycle.
0: Well, and you also see how things are backfiring because of the viciousness, right? Like, on both sides. So, when the angels started, you know, attacking these farmers and villagers and whatnot. What's the little girl's name? Oh, Svita? the Dama,
1: deer centaurs. I love them. Yeah. Um, Sviva and Sarazol.
0: Yeah, but Saviva is, like, originally scared of Roth, the...
1: Mm. The Dashnag boy. Yeah.
0: Yep. But... She kind of is like, oh, well, he's helped. Like, it, it, it is bringing, kind of what happened the first time around, what it sounds like, but bringing all these different groups of people together against a common enemy, and it's actually like...
1: It's uniting the chimera.
0: Uniting them, which is not what they intended.
1: Exactly. It's crazy.
0: There's a lot going on. And I'm just nervous about these crazy people, even though they're on our side, I guess. Which who are, Crazy people? In the world, who are in our world. Oh! <laughs> Thiago and Ten and, uh, who is that one who had a bad soul? I forget his name now. Razor or something?
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah, all the chimera who are, they're all in Mirakesh
0: In this Kasbah? And yeah, in
1: and the Kasbah. The
0: Sam castle essentially. It actually, like, that's what it is. It's like a giant, beautiful castle area that's made out of mostly sand, so. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, like, Carew's kind of stuck with all of these chimera's soldiers who don't trust her at all because she's the angel lover but they need her because she's the only resurrectionist left
0: although we've seen that like one or two chapters we saw from ziri's perspective that thiago has told them they can't talk to her so it is kind of interesting obviously there is some distrust there but it's like they're not even able to get past it right
1: now oh oh, for sure but like didn't it (laughs) This struck me as a little bit weird and kind of like a big fatal flaw on Bremstone's part. Like, he's the only resurrectionist. So, and I know he trained magical, but she wasn't even really officially his apprentice. And I just thought it was so...
0: St- and she's been gone for 18 years and didn't know who and she it was. it was like,
1: what if something had happened to him? Like, what would they have done to re- for the revenants there would there would be no more chimera soldiers and the war would be over and like that's essentially what the angels think is happening now cuz they don't really know about karu being a second resurrectionist and they think brimstone's dead
0: well i mean i think it it's partially naive but i think also there were a lot of fail safes and they just all happened to fail <laughs> like this this one city where brimstone was located does seem to be, like, the most protected part. The angels didn't even know that they had a resurrectionist until...
1: Iago spilled the beans. Yep.
0: And he did have, like, these escapes into other worlds, I guess. So even though... Like, I don't... Maybe he even had more places where he could have gone, but because all the doors were... Like, I don't really know, but I kind of feel like it was a very targeted attempt for destroying, you know... What they had set up, not... But I agree, there should have been someone who who knew enough stuff. But maybe, I mean, who was his one... Not Issa, but who was the other, like, guy who kind of helped him with the teeth and stuff? Twigga? Was it Twigga? I kind of think maybe more people did know a little bit of stuff, but they just
1: all died. Yeah, that's probably true. But I do like seeing Karu, like, trying to take over his work and how she's, like, kind of making mistakes and she, as she's trying to build these new bodies because there's Mm -hmm. like such a specific science to it and it's kind of funny how like she's not perfect at it and she makes mistakes and she made like the wings were too small to carry the one body and then she like didn't have insect teeth so she just stuck a lion's head on razor (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and and, then ten was like razor's very confused about his head and she's like this is what i had i'm sorry like you get a lion's head
0: (laughs) I did what I could do, yeah. I thought I thought it was cool, man. <laughs> and I, I love how, again, this is where, like, Susanna just brings, like, this certain amount of lightness to it because her first reaction is, like, you should create an art exhibit, and wouldn't it be cool if we, like, brought all these – and, again, she doesn't know, like, the pain involved and all this other stuff. Like, there's obviously some where she hasn't thought it through right. and thought about how it affects what she's saying, but I just – I love how she's just, like – a, totally on board with everything that is being said now. <laughs> Make another like, body. <laughs> she she can't be shocked at all at this Mm-mm. point, and she's just, like, jumping into it. She's,
1: like, <laughs> boundless positive energy, too. Yeah. And I did, like, in the beginning when she was emailing Karu, and she was, like, trying to send all these funny emails about, like, where are you? Where have you gone? And then there's one where it was just, like, oh, God, you're dead, aren't you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well... So I actually, I did some research on, because one of her emails, she says like, hello, like 14 times. And then she's like, now it's lost its meaning and like goes off on this story about Uh. finding the word hello or whatever. And I was like, oh, that's such a weird thing when that happens. You know, when you like repeat a word so many times that it like doesn't make sense. So I -hmm. I looked into that. It's called semantic satiation. Okay. Have you ever heard of that? (laughs)
1: No, but I, I, I have done that with words before.
0: I know. So I was like, I was just kind of intrigued. So I found this article on mentalfloss.com. Okay. But it was talking about how, so like the first time it was described was back in 1907 in the American Journal of Psychology. And they said, if a printed word is looked at steadily for some little time, it will be found to take on a curiously strange and foreign aspect. This loss of familiarity in its appearance sometimes makes it look like a word in another language. Sometimes proceeds further until the word is a mere collection of letters, Hmm. and occasionally reaches the extreme where the letters themselves look like meaningless marks on the paper. Whoa! And then it goes on to say, or, as Urban Dictionary succinctly described it, when you say a word so much it starts to sound effing weird.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a much more clearer description.
0: (laughs) So this guy, his name was Leon James, Um, back in 1962, he was a psychology professor at the University of Hawaii's College of Social Sciences. He did his thesis on this phenomena. And he was saying how when a brain cell fires, it takes more energy to fire a second time and then like even more to fire a third time, etc. So this is called reactive inhibition. Okay. And kind of similar similarly, when you read a word, like it elicits some kind of connotation or emotion in your brain. But like as you keep reading it, like that brain cell can't fire as quickly. But that's why they said some words that have like really strong, dramatic connotations or emotions, they don't have the same effect. So like if you think of the word explosion, Mm -hmm. it would take, you'd have to say that like a lot longer than you would have to say hello, (laughs) just because of all the different pathways that are associated Mm -hmm. with that word. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then, and he, so we talked about too, he did like a ton of these different experiments, like um, a cat, he would play a tone when the cat was sleeping, and at first, when the tone played, the cat would wake up, right? And then he would play it again when the cat fell asleep, and eventually the cat, like, would take longer to wake up, and then would just keep sleeping. But if you change the tone just a little bit, then the cat would react again. So, like, you do, and, I mean, think about even things, like, in Chicago, I remember when I lived by the train, like, the first few nights I lived by the train, it, like, always woke me up, and then I, like, didn't even notice it was there anymore. Yeah,
1: (laughs) you get used to it. Yeah. I hate when I'm at work and, like, someone says, like, do you hear that buzzing sound? And I'm like, well, no, I didn't, but now it's all I can hear. But now it's all (laughs) I can hear,
0: yeah. And then he also talked about songs. Like, he looked into music and things that jump on the pop charts and stuff. Mm -hmm. And anything that climbs really fast and gets, like, a lot of concentrated airtime also falls off really fast. Whereas things that kind of climb slower, they, like, fade slower, too. And he says that's related to the same kind of... You, like, overhear it so much that it starts to be nonsense. yeah. And that's even the whole idea behind things like chorus repetition and whatnot. Huh. I I guess there's still just, like, a lot of different, like, things that are being studied about this, but I guess, like, they think the term Black Friday is being overused and it's not as valuable as it once was in marketing, so people are, like, trying to rethink different sales ploys. And and then, (laughs) so there's this sentence. It's a grammatically correct sentence I'm going to say to you right now, okay? Okay. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. What? Yeah, and the same would be true if instead of buffalo, you used any word that was the same singular, plural, pronoun, and verb. So buffalo as a verb means like to intimidate or bully someone. (laughs) Buffalo is a city in New York, and then it's also the singular and plural term of like
1: the animal. Oh my gosh. Yeah.
0: So basically that sentence says like, Bison from Buffalo, New York, who are intimidated by other bison in their community, also happen to int- intimidate other bison in their community.
1: Oh my god, that <laughs> that's like more amazing than a palindrome, what you just did there.
0: I know, it was so crazy.
1: What is the word, what is the name for that? Like what, one word that can make a sentence if used over and over, is that, is that a thing? I
0: actually don't, I didn't find out the name, and I'm not sure what it is. Did you think of any others?
1: I, so I was like, what are other words that like
0: fit this? um So they said fish, fish, fish. How many times? It's like <laughs> I didn't remember how many times. There, one,
1: two. two. I can only do two. So, fish,
0: fish. So like fish, fish, like fish from fish, 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 <laughs> fish, <laughs> no. fish, fish. There's no. Way. So like, so like fish from fish are fished by fish, fish, and they also fish additional fish, fish. And then other examples are dice, right? Okay. Like not left, but right, and smelt, like the past, I don't, oh, because smelt is a smelt verb. Is like you can. a fish. S- oh, I, I didn't even think about that one.
1: Oh my god, that is amazing.
0: Isn't that like kind of crazy though? Like, yes. I looked at it and I like didn't get it and I had to like read into like buffalo as a verb and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot that was a word.
1: So when you were talking about how like repeating one word over and over kind of makes it lose its meaning, mm-hmm. when I was in Italy, my friend's there who were Italian and didn't speak English they would try to mimic how I sound when I spoke in English and it never mm. really occurred to me that like yeah if someone's speaking a language and you don't understand it it just sounds like random sounds but like since you understand the language yeah
0: and it's weird once you know a language you can't undo it the other way like yeah. before you know it it all sounds random
1: yeah but you just automatically associate meaning with the words. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have the meaning, what does it sound like? And when it, when they would do impressions of me speaking English fast, this is what they would do. They would go <laughs> and like that's how I sound. To English them.
0: sounds to them, yeah, <laughs> or your English. English. It made
1: yeah, I laughed so hard, and I was like, that's like fascinating because you don't, you never think that with your own language. It just always makes sense.
0: Yeah, well, I remember, because I lived in Belgium for a little while, and I had not taken any French or Flemish or anything before we moved there, and kind of feeling that way about, I mean, like, it sounded a little bit different, but just being like, I have no idea what these people are <laughs> saying, you know, like, it just sounded like noise, but, like, kind of like music, or. No- but, you know, I mean, like, yeah. language does have, like, a rhythm to it, kind of, but, and then, like, one day realizing, like, oh, Like that just sounds like words now. Or like like it's not as pretty when you know what they're saying.
1: Nope. Well, my research was a little bit different this week. (laughs) Okay. But I'm actually really excited about it because I had a ton of fun researching it. And I have to give some credit to Chad because he found one of the stories for me. When I told him when I was researching, he was like, Oh my god, you have to do this guy. I wanna what is the topic? Tell me Okay, so I was really fascinated by the two types of soldiers in this book, the uh, revenants, soldiers, and the angels, Mm -hmm. especially, like, the misbegotten, because I was fascinated by the idea, like, that it's kind of like a forced slavery where... They're not allowed to marry or bear children or own land, and they can't sleep anywhere except the barracks. And it's, I don't know, it's just like very a very. Yeah. yeah, it's like a form of slavery. But yet, they have soldiers in each army that are just so tough and so powerful and do such amazing things. So I started researching the most incredible stories of soldiers throughout history. Mm-hmm. And I have, okay, I have four stories. They're not that long. Okay. And it's just soldiers who did incredible things. So. Okay, there was this one guy from Finland. His name was um, Simo Haya, and he was a farmer. Oh, this is from awesome. this is from crackscom So he was a farmer, and in 1939, the Soviet Union invaded his country, and he decided he needed to rise up and do some damage. So he took his rifle and some food, and he hid up a tree in a forest, and he just started shooting Russians. And it... And keep in mind, this is like winter in Finland, so it was like well below zero.
0: And but it, if someone's shooting from a tree at a bunch of soldiers, did no one shoot back? Well, yeah.
1: So he okay. so he first he killed like a dozens of Russians, and then they realized that one guy was killing all of their men, and so <laughs> they started launching missions to try and take him down. So the first task force they sent, um, they he shot them all. He just shot every single one. And so then... Was he like a big hunter, do you know? He must like, have, he have been. He yeah, have
0: okay. Been. I'm just imagining if I went out to a tree with a rifle, uh, that
1: wouldn't go well. <laughs> no, we played paintball together. We both know how well we aim. <laughs> so then they sent a team of counter snipers who are snipers that are trained to kill snipers. And he okay. killed them all too. Oh my god! How big were these teams? I don't know. But they started calling him the White Death, <laughs> as you would... And in 100 days, he killed 705 people.
0: Oh my goodness. That is incredible.
1: Yeah. There were like 500 some people that he took out with just his rifle and then like another 200 that he took out with a machine gun or something like that. That's crazy.
0: How did he have that much ammo? (laughs)
1: That's a really good question. I have no (laughs) idea. But... So the Russians just, in despair, just started bombing the crap out of the area because they didn't know what else to do. But even that didn't work because he was the white death. And so he survived them, like, bombing the entire area. And then finally, in 1940, someone finally shot him down. And he had a shattered jaw and it took off, like, almost half of his face. And then six days later, he woke up and regained consciousness and was totally fine and then died later at age 96 of old age.
0: That is awesome. What is that this guy's amazing? name? Do you
1: know his name? Simohaya That's awesome. from Finland.
0: That's actually really cool and crazy. Completely nuts, And gives me a little bit of hope for our revenants
1: now. So, okay, the other one that was amazing was um, Yogendra Singh Yadar, and he was a member of um, an Indian battalion during a conflict with Pakistan in 1999. And he was on a mission to climb Tiger Hill and neutralize three enemy bunkers that were on the top. Okay. But Tiger Hill was essentially a mountain of sheer ice. And they had to to climb it. They had to go up this sheer 100-foot cliff face of solid ice. And they needed one person to volunteer to climb it with, like, you know, ice axes Mm -hmm. and fix, fix ropes so the rest of them could follow. So this guy volunteered. I don't know why but he started climbing this ice face and then halfway up the enemy opened fire and he was shot 3 times but he kept climbing fixed the ropes so then he gets to the top and one of the bunkers starts firing at him with machine guns he runs towards the bullets and manages to throw a grenade through one of the windows of the bunker and kills everyone oh my goodness I don't know if this is luck or skill, but I'm impressed. (laughs) It's amazing. The second bunker opened fire and he ran inside and killed four men with his bare hands. And then by that time, the remainder of his squad had like climbed to the top and they took the third bunker together. And he was awarded the Paramveer Chakra, which is um, India's highest military award. And it's given to people who demonstrate the rarest of the rare gallantry, which is beyond the call of duty. And which, in normal life, is considered impossible to do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that description, but very accurate. (laughs) How many other people have won this award?
1: So only 21, there's only 21 other people who were awarded it, and two-thirds of those died during the process. Oh my goodness. So he survived, and he had a shattered arm, a broken leg, and 15 bullet wounds. But he survived. Oh, and he was 19. (laughs) He was
0: 19? <laughs> he was 19. What have we done with our lives?
1: <laughs> and people were saying that um, John McCain from Die Hard, like Bruce Willis's character, was like based off of this amazing man because he could like climb elevator shafts and stuff like that. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, the last two are real short, but they're amazing. Okay.
0: Tell me, tell me. I'm, like, fascinated. Now I want... I don't want just two more. I, I want, know. like, another hour's Chad worth. Chad
1: and I had so much fun researching this because the stories were just unbelievable. Okay, number three was a man named Jack Churchill who was also known as Fighting Jack Churchill or just Mad Jack.
0: I like Mad Jack.
1: <laughs> yeah, and he must have been the craziest man of World War II because he was That's saying allied, something. Yeah, he was an allied commander and he was known... For um, insisting that soldiers carry swords into battle. Interesting. So, and in, so he was famous for carrying a sword into battle in World War II, and he didn't just carry any old sword; he carried a claymore sword, which, if you've ever watched Outlander, it's like that two-edged broadsword that Scottish Highlanders used to use. <laughs> Okay. So he would, like, run into battle swinging this freaking broadsword, and he (laughs) managed to capture 42 Germans, and he led a task force to, like, capture this German stronghold. And there was a mortar shell that took out his entire team, but he survived, but he kind of knew that, like, since his team was gone, he was going to get captured, so he just stood there waiting for the Germans to find him. (laughs) And when they found him, he was playing will you know come back again on his bagpipes which he also carried into battle with him and so <laughs> this is just insane so they they sent him to a concentration camp which he escaped from and then they captured him and sent him to a second concentration camp, which he also escaped from. Then he walked 150 miles through Germany with a can of onions for food before he was finally picked up by Americans and sent back to Britain. And when he got back, he was really disappointed because the war was over. That seems like it would not be healthy. <laughs> Just what a what a funny image of like this man carrying a Scottish Highlander sword in the battle in <laughs> World War II. <laughs> Okay, so then the last one, this is the one that Chad gave me. Okay, I'm most excited for this one. Okay, in World War II, I guess um, methamphetamine was used in the German armed forces as, like, a stimulant to keep people awake. And it was known as – it was sold in tablet form, and it was called Pervitin. Okay. And it was essentially speed. Okay. <laughs> and so in, in March in 1944, there was um, – a Finnish ski patrol that was on a mission behind enemy lines. Which, I don't—I didn't realize that there were things like task force, ski
0: patrols. I was just about to say, that's kind of awesome. Yeah. Like, so all those people that I made fun of for, like, moving off to Colorado and working at a ski lodge, like, they could be really valuable ones. Exactly. Okay.
1: But I just, I had no idea that there were such things as ski patrols that went on missions. But, anyway, there was one man... Emo Koivunin. and okay. <laughs> Sorry. He was ambushed by Soviet forces. His ski patrol was ambushed. And he managed to slip past them and, like, made a mad dash to escape. And so what happened was the Soviet forces began pursuing him, also on skis. So there was essentially a ski chase that happened. I didn't know all these people had skis back then. <laughs>
0: I mean, I knew they had bagpipes, but skis? <laughs> I'm just kidding.
1: And so he was like in this mad race for his life and the enemy forces were catching up to him. And he felt himself flagging because he had been skiing for so long. And he remembered that he had his group's entire supply of Pervitin in his pocket. And so <laughs> since he was skiing for his life, it was too hard to like dig out the pill bottle and open it up and just select one pill so he just threw all 30 pills in his mitten and just took them all makes sense logical Mm -hmm. so he escaped but then he had such a large dose of speed in his system that he started to become delirious and have really severe hallucinations which lasted several days And then after he finally stopped hallucinating, he realized that he was 100 kilometers away from his patrol, and he was completely alone, with no food and no ammunition, and just tablets of speed left. So over the course of the next week, he skied 250 miles in temperatures below zero. He was injured by a landmine, and... Also survived in a, like, snowbank for a week waiting for help to arrive. I can't even ski
0: for three minutes. I'm just going to throw that out there.
1: And it was probably, like, cross-country skiing, which is not like downhill skiing. (laughs) It's, like, very strenuous. And all he had to eat were pine needles, one raw bird that he caught with his hands, and these speed tablets. And when he finally got rescued, his pulse... His pulse was two hundred beats per minute. Oh my goodness! And he weighed like ninety five pounds, but he survived. And he, I didn't know you like... could eat
0: pine needles. So should I do that if I'm lost in the wilderness? Um,
1: maybe <laughs>
0: only if I have speed to mix it with.
1: <laughs> or maybe try a raw bird first, and okay. then pine needles would be the last resort. <laughs> But yeah, like, he managed to survive. He just had this amazing survival story, but he was also, like, one of the first people to overdose on (laughs) (laughs) speed. And that Um, was my research about soldiers. So
0: when he came back to, like, real life, do you know what happened to him then?
1: No, I don't. Okay. I mean, he was okay. Like, I think he survived. He was rescued and everything.
0: I love that first story. Didn't you say that guy lived to be, like, 90-something?
1: Yeah, ninety six.
0: That's how that's how you survive. <laughs> <laughs> that's the trick, guys. <laughs> don't take my advice. Please don't go Ugh. be a crazy soldier. That is hilarious. Well, okay, so this kind of relates to some other research I did, actually. But, like, really kind of distinctly. Okay. So, during the... When Sveva and Sarazal and Roth and the rest of the crew were captured mm-hmm. by the angels, the slavers. Yeah. Um, they're... Part of why... Zarazal was injured was because she had a constraint that was too tight for her basically or what? whatever it was the wrong size it wasn't appropriately fit but they were talking about how they intentionally were trying to do constraints that weren't on limbs that you could free yourself from
1: oh my gosh I know he was like we wouldn't put it on an arm because you can live without an arm essentially
0: so I looked up a lot about Well, could you live without these things? (laughs) Or what would you do if you had to free yourself by amputating a limb? Oh, no.
1: (laughs) Okay, let's hear it.
0: So, like, the really common story, or not common story, but the story that a lot of people have heard is, like, the the story about the guy who influenced 127 Hours, that movie, where, what was his name? Aaron Ralston. Yep. And he was trapped by a boulder and after three days there was no center of rescue and his water ran out and then two days later he was basically like you know no one's coming for me i'm either gonna die out here or i can try to save my life by losing my limb um and so he did a few things right like he pulled a tourniquet Mm -hmm. around his bicep and um he i think he also used like leverage to break his bone and stuff to make it easier but um there was also this man this is from slate.com There was a Colorado man who got stuck under a six-ton trailer back in 2011, I think it was, and he decided after 30 minutes of squirming and shouting for help that he should cut off his toes
1: to free himself. 30 minutes—that's it? Yeah. What? So this was just his—wait, it was his toes, not his feet. His toes. Okay. Well, is what it
0: sounds like, but. So this, this article, the first piece of advice it has is you should wait at least a day before you <laughs> amputate something. And then it says at longer least. if you can stand it. Um, because the truth is just being trapped under a weight usually isn't life-threatening, but cutting through something can be. So especially in the foot, there's two arteries um, in the bottom of the foot and I think one big one in the leg as well. So like if you sever one of those and can't stop the blood flow, you could die within 30 minutes.
1: Oh, Okay.
0: So you really should only do it if you're convinced that no one's going to find you option. and you're going to die. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. Um, keep that in mind. Some other
0: advice they have is tell people where you're going and when you're expected to be back. Um, and they, they said actually most people who are lost in the wilderness in America are found within 24 hours. And a lot of the main threats to your survival are slower than that. So hypothermia is a big one, but it's not going to kill you in less than a day unless you're like...
1: <laughs> on Everest.
0: Soaked all the way through. Yeah um if it's warm outside dehydration is a big issue but that usually also takes a few days to kill you and that would be assuming you don't have access to water like the guy in 127 hours still had water for a few days
1: that's like I I watch I survived a lot and there's always those ones where like there was one who like a woman fell down a canyon and she like broke her hip really badly and her dog was with her and he ran and he brought back help for her
0: yeah, that's why you should always have a dog, even if your dog is crazy like mine,
1: right? Banjo would never yeah. do that, though. No, Toby
0: wouldn't either. He'd be like, now I can steal your socks and you can't catch me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she would just curl up next to me and go to sleep. <laughs>
0: um, so you also shouldn't wait too long, because if you're on the verge of death, then you might not be able to free yourself. And so, like, some signs that oh, yeah. you're too far along might be a loss of coordination or... Lethar- lethargy, how do you say lethargy. that? Lethargy, lethargy. Um, and like assuming you'd have to self-amputate and then hike to safety, Ugh. that would be really hard if you wait too long. Um, you should also cut only as much as is necessary to get free of the weight, <laughs> and you should let the surgeon worry about any damaged tissue.
1: Yeah, that seems like common sense. Like you don't need to be hacking off more than you need.
0: Well, you might think like, oh, it's easier if I just cut through the leg here, oh, but God. instead, like, cut off three toes or something. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> there's another fun fact, as any third year medical student can tell you, slicing through skin, muscle, and ligaments takes more force than you'd expect. So even if you have a really sharp knife, you'll have to press really hard. Oh
1: god. And you might
0: pass out from the pain, but you'll come to fairly quickly again. And um it is really hard to cut through bone, especially if all you have is a pocket knife. So that's when they suggest things like trying to break it. So that um
1: Oh, oh sorry, that was just me gagging in the background. <laughs>
0: So then once you've cut your, cut yourself free, your biggest concern
1: is bleeding. Let Okay. Oh, sorry. I'm going to say blood loss. Yeah. So,
0: so you want to cover the stump with a cloth, apply direct pressure, and if you're able to fashion a tourniquet out of anything that you can and hope that that helps you.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Um, they also said even if you are able to save your limb until you're rescued, it might your limb may not actually be saved because if it's been trapped from blood supply for too long, right? after like six to eight hours, your limb is likely gone.
1: Yeah, they always say like, put your finger in milk or something like that. They say that? Have you ever heard that? No. Yeah, like if you accidentally cut your finger off, you're supposed to put it in a glass of milk and then go right to the doctor. I should keep
0: milk around for this purpose. Also, fun fact, so (laughs) I really like hot peppers, and if you (laughs) chop a hot pepper and then touch your eye... It's not good. It's not a pleasant experience. Nope, we've
1: all been there. But if
0: you pour milk in your eye, it helps.
1: <laughs> Wait, you've actually poured a glass of milk in your eye?
0: <laughs> I I've literally had because this has happened to me multiple times. I literally have had people pour milk into my eye because I'm my eye is burning from hot peppers.
1: No, that makes sense. <laughs> that happened to my sister once. She ate a shishito pepper at a restaurant and just started like drooling uncontrollably because it was so hot and the guy just brought her like a huge glass of milk and he was like, it happens every night. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, they say water doesn't help with like that kind right, of right. hotness. But yeah. Mm. Um, well. <laughs> so I have, I have a couple other fun facts about amputations.
1: With, is this fun? <laughs> Are you having fun? Well, okay.
0: <laughs> so part of what I love about our research is knowing what to do in situations. Like now I know if my foot is trapped, there's two arteries there and I'm not going to cut it off. And like, I know that I can survive 24, like after 24 hours, maybe I'd start to really worry because no one's found me and things are going to start to happen, but I can wait 24 hours, even though that would be terrifying.
1: Right? That's true. We might save someone's life. Yeah. With our research. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> continue <laughs> well no i mean that's really the most interesting stuff i found but but then i i found this other article and it was like <laughs> steps for what you should do if you need to amputate your own arm to survive but like but it's just funny again because like the first few steps are like assess the situation to figure out if you really need to do this and then like step two is like search for alternatives to free your limb and then step three is think about signaling techniques <laughs> like so it's just like really you basically don't Amputate yourself, if you, especially if you don't know what you're doing. Even if you're a medical student, I would suggest waiting at least 24 hours, if not longer. And definitely do a tourniquet, so everyone should go Google how to do that before you go into the wilderness alone. At
1: the very least. Also,
0: probably probably not a great idea to go into the wilderness alone.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know what? You can just stay at home and watch Planet Earth instead. In an amputation,
0: like modern day, with the proper scalpel, saw, tools, etc. from an expert takes about 45 minutes. So it's actually like a relatively speedy procedure. Mm -hmm. But there was this surgeon back in London in the early 19th century named Astley Cooper. He was really popular. um, And while his amputations may not have been the same level, he supposedly could do the job inside 15 minutes. So
1: That still seems so long to me.
0: Yeah, it does. Can you imagine? And like you're in pain and you're... I mean, kind of like, I think it was Sveva, she was like, I would never do that anyways. But it's like, at some point, you might decide.
1: I'm trying to think of like, what the minimum amount of, no, I guess maximum amount of time would be before I would end up cutting off my own limb. Well, I mean,
0: I think being it, <laughs> trapped with a slaver would be interesting, because it seems like it would be hard to even get a tool, and hard to have yeah. time to get away, and then you might have just like, cut off your hand for no reason.
1: I honestly don't think I would even do it. Well, I pass out at the sight of blood, Yeah, like, I think I would just wait, and I'll be like, no, just five more minutes. Five more minutes, someone's going to come. And I would just say five more minutes until I, I like, died of starvation. Yeah. I guess I don't have a very strong survival instinct, is what that means.
0: Well, I think it goes back to, I'm probably not going to go into the wilderness by myself for a really long time, if ever.
1: (laughs) Well, speaking of really bad, uh, painful situations, um, can we talk about what happened to Ziri at the end? Yeah. <laughs> oh,
0: it's really bad. It's really bad. I just, I f- feel so bad for him. Again, I, I agree. Ziri's a great character, and especially in those kind of last couple scenes, he's already starting to be someone
1: I really, really like in this series. But
0: it's, it's just, how old
1: is he? He's like... Um, okay, well, we know that he tried to rescue Magical... When she was was executed, he was 12, and so 18 years have passed, so he's 30.
0: Okay. Because for some reason, I, like, picture him as, like, a lot younger than that. Same here. And just, like, imagining, like, kind of this... And maybe it's just because he's the last of his kind, so even though we're not supposed to really care about... Because we know he can be reborn into a different body and all this stuff, like, there is something about destroying this untouched, like, young... His original body. You know, this idea of... Yeah. Because I terrible. love how,
1: like, when he go they go on that mission and instead of killing the angels, like, the, um, the women and children, the, the troop goes to the rescue of the chimera. And I loved that Zuri was picked to be the safety because they always need one chimera who stays out of battle to um, glean the souls of the fallen. And he, so he was, like – it had to be torture, like, watching his comrades get butchered, essentially, because they knew it was a suicide mission – but, like, still... And even trying a, to
0: decide, because you ha- can't wait too long. They were burning the bodies.
1: Right. Before and trying to guess, souls. like, yeah. But just, like, the fact that his leader gave him a chance to keep his original body, because it is such a rare thing. Oh, uh, and then they destroy it. And then they the soldiers laid a trap, and they kidnap him. And they carved the... Um, the smile. The mark of the, the smile on his face, which... I forgot was the warlord's signature during Mm -hmm. the uprising. Yeah, I forgot about that, too. Uh, But, I mean... And then it just ends. And then we just ended with, like, he makes his... He escapes and he finds his way back to camp. But then it's just, like, knowing this awful thing happened.
0: But I also... I did love how part of what kept him from betraying his... Like, I mean, it sucks. That's terrible. But he, it sounds like he stayed strong through the torture because he was thinking about what he had seen happen, you know, as a 12-year-old.
1: And, to Akiva. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And Kairu. But yeah, I mean, but yeah, Akiva specifically, I guess. Like, with withstanding torture and being like, well, if he could do it, I can do it too. Like, yeah. I, there was something kind of beautiful about that too, but ugh.
1: I agree. And I love that we did get more flashbacks of Magical's life, you know, when mm-hmm. she's with Akiva and even though it was, like, these horrible scenes where Thiago, like, kind of lay in wait for her and, like, watched them have this really intimate moment together and then ambush them. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, it's just so ironic, too, that, like, the few soldiers, the few chimera who, are survive, who survived the, um attack. Of course, Thiago, the one who murdered her, is the one who survived. I know.
0: Like, that's just such cruel irony. Uh, it's not Brimstone, it's Thiago. Uh, yeah. Well, and then there's like this weird dependence between them, but also like, her instincts still are telling her not to trust him, but he is trying to like, kind of make amends and has offered his pain and stuff like that. But he's also keeping her separate from the group. Like, it's he's kind of a difficult character to figure out right now and she's like not even sure if she should trust her instincts or not with yeah. this stuff
1: because he's like saying things like oh I want to atone for what I did to you but ugh, it's mm-hmm. like how much can you trust him although the one thing I do like about Tiago is I like that we learned that he doesn't send his soldiers to fight in his stead like he won't stay back in safety and watch people fight for him and that was like a point of contention during the yeah. war because, like the war in the past, because he would mm-hmm. always go right into battle and like fight at the front lines and his and he'd always get killed and his dad was like, you are a general, you don't have to die at the front, but he had really no fear of dying and he always fought by his men's side and I kind of, I did kind of admire that. I grudgingly gave Thiago that.
0: I agree, but I also couldn't tell if it was because he, like, didn't want to miss out on killing people or because he was a good leader. You know
1: what I mean? That's true. That's true. Because, oh, they said that his trademark was, like, ripping out people's throats with his teeth. So maybe you're right. Maybe he just, like, really likes killing people, which is not a redeeming quality at all. Good. I don't want to like him. I mean, his,
0: his direction has been a little bit weird, but we haven't heard that he, like, went around and killed innocent people either.
1: But he sent the, the chimera on that mission to kill the innocents, the angels that were yeah. just, like, women and children.
0: But also, when you think about how small their numbers are, he might be doing just anything he can to make it. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard because, like I said, I think there's a dependence. He needs her because he can't mm-hmm. rebuild his army without bodies. And she kind of needs him because, like, he he actually is, like, this charismatic kind of effective
1: leader, and, like... Well, right now, she couldn't control the revenants without him, for sure. Because they don't trust her.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, not even control them, but she couldn't do anything Use Like, he's the only hope for the Khmer at all right now.
1: That's true. How sad is that?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, well, so I did a little bit... I did one more research.
1: Okay. You did a lot of research this week.
0: Well, I... Because none of it was very related to what we actually read. It was like, (laughs) oh, I read this one sentence, and then I decided to look into it. So... Again, Susanna and Mick, by extension, are two of my favorite characters, and I think they, like, bring a lot of levity to the whole book. Mm-hmm. And one of the kind of cute stories that happened in here was they were talking about their date or her her birthday or something, and she had always wanted to, like, win a cakewalk. Oh, yeah. And ha- hadn't won a cake, and he, like, set this up. So I was like, oh, I should look into, like, the origin of the cakewalk, but it's kind of depressing.
1: Oh, no. Oh, I, I honestly know nothing about it.
0: So, you've done a cakewalk, right?
1: Nope.
0: You've never done that? Okay, so there's, like, circles on the floor, and there's, like, music that plays, and when it stops, dancers land on a number, and if that number's pulled out of a hat or whatever, then they get to pick a cake from this table. That's kind of, okay. like, the modern-day cakewalk. Um, and this is according to AmericanHistory.si.edu. But I guess it was, like, back in... It's actually kind of fitting for the story we're reading a little bit, but it's back from... When southern plantations used to have slaves, this is kind of where this started. Okay. So they don't know the exact year or location, but like that part of the world and time frame. Um, and it was this kind of grand promenade dance where couples would alternate performing and whoever had the best dancing skills would take the cake. So that's another idiom. Oh, that's funny. But I guess it was kind of like this chance for the enslaved people to make fun of the, like, southern elite who would enslave them. So they would dress up in finer clothes and kind of parody, you know, the plantation owners and, you know, the white elite around them. So uh, I guess there was this European dance called the Grand March that initially influenced it, but they also would incorporate a lot of different moves from different African dances, so different kinds of twists and high kicks and whatnot. So there's definitely, like, a strong you know, African-American influence into this, this whole process. So while it's related to the grand March, it's, it's also distinct in its own way. Um, and I guess that you would maybe think that the slave owners would be like, they're mocking us. Like let's punish them. But most of the owners actually encouraged it. Um, and it was like another way for them to demonstrate authority, I guess, by they were the, the white people were the ones who chose who won the cake still. So it wasn't like a vote among everyone watching or anything. Um, but, By the end of the Civil War, I guess they were also, like, really into the whole, like, cakewalk thing, and there was this, these minstrel shows, which is, like, a variety show that white people would perform in blackface, so, big no-no.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: But during these performances, they would also kind of do the cakewalk.
1: Okay. But was it in Mockery of the Slaves?
0: Yeah, so the blackface performance done by white people would, like, present the dance as, like, really ridiculous and whatnot. Ugh, and then awful. eventually, like, in the 1870s, African-American actors also began to perform here. And so at one point, it kind of became blacks imitating whites who were imitating blacks who were imitating whites. Like, it became this kind of, like, really roundabout, like, okay. who's even making fun of who and, like, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. But,
0: um, it, it, again, it just has this kind of negative...
1: Now I never want to do one.
0: I know! Well, I thought it was going to be, like, this fun story about, like, how you win a cake or whatever. (laughs) But it's actually, like, tied into this, like... Horrible
1: history.
0: Horrible history. Mm. But but also kind of interesting that African Americans were allowed to, like, mock the white people during these performances originally. Mm -hmm. And, like, with no punishment and, like, kind of how it's developed from that and sort of how it kind of went in this circle of, like who's making fun of who's making fun of who.
1: Yeah, but the slave owners still had all the power.
0: Yeah, that that would be how they would perceive it. But I was, I'm kind of surprised that it, like, continued to be popular knowing that's how it was being Yeah, used. me too.
1: Although I can't remember the last time I even have heard of it or have seen it happen. A cakewalk? Nope.
0: You've, I, I feel like it used to be at, like, every, like, childhood fair or festival thing I went to, even, like, birthday parties and st- I feel like in Europe, actually, oh, really? I went to a lot of birthday parties with cakewalk. So, not the best story, but I thought I was looking into something happy because it was a fun and lighthearted part of the book.
1: <laughs> cake! Let's
0: research this. Yeah, cake and dates and. It's
1: kind of good to know the history, though. So we now know never to do a cakewalk again. It's too bad it wasn't what you expected, though.
0: At least I know how to save my arm that's in the true. if I need to. So <laughs>
1: one good thing we learned this week. It's really
0: uplifting overall. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and don't take speed uh... on skis. <laughs> Because you'll end up going 250 miles before you even know it.
0: Although, if I take speed on skis, I'll probably live.
1: (laughs) You probably won't, won't, because your heart rate will be at (laughs) 200 beats per minute. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so for next week, we're going to finish the book. Ah, We're going through this too quickly. We're going to find out what happens to Zuri. Yep. We're going to see if we can trust the Ago.
0: We're gonna see what Akiva tells the siblings, if anything. Oh
1: yes, because now he knows that Karu is alive. Oh, so much we have to find, figure out.
0: Hopefully, we'll have more Susanna.
1: Um, I also told my sister to draw us in our chimera bodies that we came up with last week. I'm so excited because <laughs> she is an artist and she's a really good artist. And but I just texted her like randomly on Saturday morning and I was like, hey, uh, real quick, could you draw me with snow <laughs> leopard legs and eagle wings and ibex horns? Thanks. And she just wrote back like a long line of dots. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And then she was like, I think I could probably do the animal parts.
0: <laughs> I know. I loved how that was the easy part
1: for her. And then she was like, are you sure about the horns? Because they sound scary.
0: <laughs> I didn't even realize she was an artist. I thought you were just randomly texting her at first. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, she does like really amazing drawings. So that's awesome. I'm curious to see if she comes up with anything. That's so cool. Oh, and then I have to tell you, I have to tell you a joke this week.
0: Yes, let's end on a light <laughs> note for real, <laughs> instead of cakewalk. <laughs> that was really no cakewalk. <laughs> doing that research.
1: Um. Okay. So I have an angel joke for you. I have two angel jokes for you.
0: Ooh. Two mm. for one.
1: How do angels greet each other?
0: They wave. I don't know.
1: They say, hello. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. It's hard to tell jokes like that because you can't say like, halo, because that doesn't sound like hello, but you can't say hello because it doesn't sound like halo. I think I did it pretty well, though. No,
0: you got it. you got got it. Yeah, that was good.
1: Okay, the second one is, we need two jokes this week to make up for the dark material we covered. Agreed. I need to. I need to laugh a lot. All right. Why did the angel need workers comp? Why? She had harp failure. (laughs) 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 That's a good one, too. Uh, What can I say? I tried.
0: It's kind of hard a little bit to hear these angel jokes and not think about the angels in this book and, like, to think about, like, the stereotypical angels that
1: the jokes are about (laughs) with like white togas and golden wings although when i typed in angel jokes i I didn't realize it but i accidentally typed in angle jokes and i got all these (laughs) best geometry jokes because like i can't spell and it was just all these pictures of like angles and geometry and i was just like what that
0: sounds right up my alley too though i probably would have loved it
1: (laughs) that's hilarious all right okay okay let's get back to reading and real quick thank you for everyone who's been following us you can follow us on instagram at mnktalkya or you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com if you want to send us a dad joke or tell us of a series you want us to read
0: yeah we only have a book and a half left so we need some we need
1: some recos um and thank you for following us thank you guys bye bookworms go get a library card